Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Green Annotators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. On this week's interview, we're going to be talking with comics creator Tom Humberstone. We'll talk about the new graphic novel, Suzanne, the Jazz Age Goddess of Tennis. This is out now from Avery Hill Publishing, and it's one of Comic Book Herald's favorite comics of 2022. A list that is now up to, I think, 30 books going strong. Suzanne's one of the most recent ads, so I'm excited to talk to Tom about that. Uh, The book, it's about Suzanne Lenglen, one of the world's greatest tennis players, a revolutionary player during her career uh, that primarily spanned from like the 1920s, right? So we're kind of roaring 20s era, and then of course a little buildup before that through World War One and all that world history there. Um, but Suzanne's a fascinating, fascinating sports figure, one I had not heard of before, despite some light familiarity with tennis. My mom's a huge tennis fan, so like I, f- I feel like I know the names, uh, but I did not know anything about Suzanne. And I think that's kind of part of the part of the reason this book's so fascinating and so necessary. So Tom, thanks for joining. Um, Suzanne Langland, she's got like Babe Ruth numbers and profile, right? Like she's got this incredible tennis performance and legacy, but without any of the cultural imprint, you know, comparatively, right? Um, how did you come to to her and then kind of telling her story in, in a graphic novel? Yeah, well, that's the funny thing. Like, Babe Ruth is my sort of go-to sort of uh, sports star when talking about Suzanne Nolan because when when anyone, I mean, whether you're into sports or tennis or not, possibly if you asked anyone to name a sports figure from the 1920s, you're going to come up with Babe Ruth, I think, uh, if anyone. And yet, at the time, Suzanne Nolan was, like, bigger than than that in, in terms of global as a global phenomenon and has had like a lasting cultural impact in ways in which we don't necessarily realize so like uh wimbledon had to move venue from uh it was a place on warple road in in sorry saying wimbledon sounds ridiculous because uh the wimbledon all lawn tennis association had to move venue um sure. uh, from warple road to church road Church Road uh, to where it is today in order to accommodate the crowds that came to see her. Um, the fact that, that she was one of the first women to sort of eschew the corset, the way all their corsets that women wore when they played sports, sort mm-hmm. of led to the, uh, uh, the flapper aesthetic and sort of changed the way women dressed in the 20th century. Um, and, you know, uh, sort of had a large part in creating that kind of jazz age look. Uh, so all of these things um, she definitely had an impact on. But like you say, no one knows her name. I think maybe if you're a watcher of, like, the French Open, like, as I I am, like, uh, as a tennis fan, you might sort of notice that, like, her name is what one of the courts are named after her. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's all I sort of knew about her was the, the, the court name. Um, and it was only after reading a couple of books um uh, about tennis history, but uh, I came across her and, and her amazing story. And it, yeah, it seems sort of ridiculous that she's not this sort of like household name in that respect. Yeah, yeah, no, it is fascinating when you point out all those ways that she does have this massive cultural imprint in the moment. I guess when I'm I'm saying now it's more the collective sort of who do we remember from the era? And obviously it's a very small set of tennis fans <laughs> that yeah, can yeah. probably talk about Suzanne. Um, so, so you're, you're researching this, you kind of, you're finding out about her um, kind of at what point, what triggers you to be like, I want to do 
a full graphic novel about her life because it's it's you know you've done a lot of like political um comics for the nib uh you've you've got a really varied career a lot of like poet poetry comics um you worked with karen gillen on like phonogram you know for a short story um but this is i think the biggest thing certainly that i came across that you've done uh what kind of triggered that impulse yeah i guess i've been really wanting to do my own sort of uh like ogn you know graphic novel for a while um i'd had various ideas come and go and I was sort of largely sort of focusing on nonfiction work at the time. Uh, when I came across this story, the big thing was uh, I sort of fell down that sort of Wikipedia rabbit hole and just uh, kept on finding out more about her. I picked up there's like a couple of like out of print books I picked up to sort of read about her, but there's there's little else out there. Um, and the more I found out about her story, the more I thought, why? Why isn't there like a you know like a film about her or a TV show? Or it, like it felt like ridiculous that there wasn't more out there. So I, I just started on down that road at first, and then I started to see the ways in which her story intersects with like the like socio political sort of history of the early twentieth century. The the fact that like her rise and fall mirrors that of the jazz age. You, you know you can. Um, draw so many parallels between her story and the story of tennis players of today. Um, there's a lot about like, there's a lot, I'm th- I've been thinking about this recently with uh, Federer's retirement in that um, there was almost this sort of dichotomy created in the tennis media and the press that uh, Federer was the sort of natural genius and Nadal was the hardworking sort of grinder and, and, you know, that's where you could see the, the difference in their playing styles. And the idea of like Federer not working very hard sort of does a disservice to both Nadal and Federer. And there was a lot of that sort of idea of like the myth, the mythology of the kind of God created talent that comes. Yeah. Uh, that sort of, that's all in there with Suzanne's story as well. Like her dad was a very good PR man in terms of talking about how she was so gifted. Um, and so there are all of these things and I realized there was a story that I wanted to read that I think I ended up wanting to write and, and draw and it just sort of fell in love with the story. Um, uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it seemed, it seemed like a, a nice stepping stone in, in, in a certain way from building up the confidence, my own confidence in writing fiction, because this is a historical fiction while it is obviously telling a non-fiction story. Um, yeah, right. Uh, so it felt like a nice way of sort of easing me into the world of like writing fiction and, um, yeah, giving me a confidence mm. that. So. Sort of like a half step yeah. between, you know, you got you to fill in some gaps because there's not a ton documented about this. That's interesting. I, I wrote in my, my brief synopsis uh, review of the book for The Best List that, like, it reminded me of The Queen's Gambit, which was obviously a huge, um, a huge show on Netflix about this woman's chess player. And I, I wrote there how annoyed I was when I got to the end of the series because I, I refused to Google anything about this <laughs> about this chess star because I didn't want the story spoiled. And then I got to the end and I was like, oh, wait, this wasn't real at all. <laughs> and I guess it's based on certain realities, but it's not like a real person. Whereas Suzanne, it is. But then it's clearly like, you know, it's you have to you don't have a transcript of the conversations they had. Like, how did you, how did you kind of decide where you wanted to walk that line between 
journalism, documentary, and historical fiction. Yeah. Yeah, it's always a tricky one. Um, there are a lot of like biopics and um, sort of biographies out there that, um, yeah, walk that tricky line in a way in which I'm not comfortable with. So I really wanted to make sure I did this um, with a lot of intentionality and know exactly what I was changing and why. I wanted to be very transparent about it as well. So I tried to, um, I put a lot of footnotes at the back about the the things that I had changed. But obviously, like you say, there would be like loads of scenes that are just completely made up whole cloth. Um, so I think uh, one of the first things that I did was after like a couple of years of research, I figured out that uh, the, the way I wanted to structure it would be around key matches in her life and how those matches largely you could pin various themes on each match. And so those matches would be for chapters, essentially, and all the conversations that would happen before and after those matches would be around the theme of that match and that chapter and how it would all tie together. Um, and so I guess I was starting to make those sorts of decisions when dealing with the structure in terms of like, this is roughly how I'm going to break someone's life down, you know, into like vaguely digestible chunks. Um, uh, but in a way in which if I was compressing time, I don't think I did compress time in any place. And there was a draft, an early draft where I did merge two real people into one person. I changed that. I, I started to feel quite uncomfortable that, about that sort of thing. Mm. So, uh, I got rid of that. So generally, I think the, the changes I made is I, I think her like entourage that she sort of went to matches with would change on a week by week basis and it would be quite large. And so what I ended up doing was just sort of only having a few key named individuals who were like part of her sort of like entourage and part of her life uh, generally right. and, um, and focus on them so that you got to know these characters throughout her life and what they meant to her. Um, yeah, so I started doing that sort of thing. And yeah, then when it came to the actual conversations, the main thing I wanted to do is like, for, it had to come back to the reasons why I wanted to tell it in this way in the first place, which was I wanted it to capture the life and the vibrancy of like her career and her personality in a way in which it might not be easy to just um, capture in, in straight prose or in a sort of quite, you know, dry nonfiction uh, or documentary approach. I wanted there to be that life of the roaring twenties. I wanted to have her like sassy witticisms and I wanted there, there to be a lot of that in there. So, um, so it was about making sure that I focused on the thing, the reasons why I wanted to write it in this way in the first place and sort of draw all of that stuff out of the uh, scenes. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I think biography and comics is a tricky thing. I think there are so many examples of autobiography that are very well known and popular, you know, mouse chief among them, but obviously books like Persepolis. Um, I just read like Vietnam America and uh, the best we could do kind of these stories about Vietnamese immigration into America and stuff. And like that, that, style that memoirish approach is i think very familiar to a lot of comics readers and there's a lot of great stuff i think historical fiction or biography is 
maybe less common than that, maybe a little trickier um, to pull off in in the medium. Were there any uh, major influences that you had in terms of like structure or approach, like like sports documentary or biopics or even just biographies you've read or other comics, like like anything kind of in the art world that you were like, I want to evoke the sensation of that thing. Yeah, I mean, there were a few different things. Um, uh, and, and it's interesting because I'm not necessarily fans of some of these things. But uh, I, I, um, I think I had in the back of my head uh, Aaron Sorkin's screenplay for Steve Jobs and the way in which he broke that down into, you know, three acts. And the three acts are uh, all the conversations that are happening before a key speech that he was doing, which doesn't sound like the most riveting uh, uh, film. Uh, so sounds very, it sounds very Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> to structure and, things uh, around talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah quite. Um, and I'm not a big uh, fan of the way in which he does, he, he is very comfortable with compression and all of the ways in which he does treat people's real lives. And mm-hmm. yeah. I do think at a certain point you do have to decide what, what, why you're interested in the story in the first place and how you're going to tell it because otherwise you will create a messy story if you're completely beholden to just what, you know, what happened. You, you need to figure out your way through it. So uh, it's funny, I've got a lot of this in my head at the moment because I just watched, um, there's a really good YouTube video essayist called uh, Rory Deschanel. And she just did uh-huh. one on um, Elvis and the mediocrity uh-huh. of the biopic, and it's really fascinating. We just we just started watching that last night, oh, my wife and I. Nice. We watched like the first two hours, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've not so I've not seen Elvis itself, but I'd recommend that video essay afterwards. Uh-huh. Uh, be interested to find out what you made of it. But um, yeah, I, so a lot of this is in my head at the moment. Um, so yeah, there was that. I was also funny enough thinking of Baz Luhrmann's. Gatsby in that I didn't like that film but I really liked the use of contemporary music in it Mm. to with the idea being that you're trying to evoke what it felt like to listen to that music at the time because now it might not have the same impact so I to the extent with uh, some of the matches I was uh, if I was trying to look at photo reference of how someone's hitting a forehand or a backhand um, for a particular panel. I I sourced current players in the way that they held their rackets now, which wouldn't necessarily work with the wooden rackets of the time, but I wanted the dynamic flow of it because generally if you're looking at those early, the way it, players played in the 20s with wooden rackets, it's not going to have the same sort of dynamism and, and uh, it's going to look a little staid, a little quaint almost. Yeah. I wanted it to, to look a lot more sort of, um, yeah, I'm going to keep saying the word dynamic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you, you had to modernize the actual game yeah. to, to make it connect. That's interesting. See, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have known that, but I, I thought, I mean, definitely one thing that struck me about it, I think one of the reasons I liked it so much is the, the tennis scenes work really well. Um, and I always find that to be a really hard thing to pull off in any kind of like sports comic, you know, and I've read 
like slam dunk i've read somewhat recently the inoue manga which does this really well um but it's like you capture the the tension of tennis i think uh very effectively um that silence during a rally you know when when an unforced error can set back years of work like that's a thing about tennis that that other sports don't necessarily have not that there aren't high stakes and pressure but it's just that quiet and that that back back and forth modernizing the dynamics of it is really interesting to me how did you kind of determine like okay when i'm showing tennis here's what's most important to me yeah um it's funny uh there's a way of telling like the you know that that first match at wimbledon the uh, the, the the final in 1919 against dorothy chambers uh there's a version of that which took over sort of three hours and you know it's like across like 40 odd games there's a version of that like it could be like a, a 600 page graphic novel in on its own in terms of showing all the different uh all the different points and what happened and how all the tactics change across that obviously yeah. uh, you know a part of me would love to do that i don't know how uh, exciting it would be to read but um uh, yeah so obviously you've got to start like you know, um, boiling it down to like the, the bare essentials and, and the try and keep the tension and make the reader care about what's happening. Also make it legible to people who don't know anything about tennis and the way the point scoring works. And so what I tended to do, and I didn't realize I was doing this, um, this came into clarity recently when uh, I watched, I rewatched Top Gun and all the, uh, yeah. the action scenes in that. You can't tell who's chasing who in any of the exterior shots of the planes. But what you have is when you're in the cockpit, they're just narrating it. It's a radio plane. That would work as well on the stage because it's just people saying, I'm on your tail, I'm behind you now. Oh, he's gone up. Uh, you know, it, it was very clear to me that what was happening was we were just being told what was happening. It works really well. Um, like that's not how I remember that film. So uh, what I found was I could do that in in the way in which people were talking about what was happening. So it mm -hmm. was about what his her, uh, Suzanne's parents were saying uh, in terms of what they were saying to each other and how they were criticizing her. It was what their, her friends and what her antagonists were saying in the crowd and they yeah. were sort of commentating on the match that would give which also sells their character yeah. which was interesting yeah, yeah. right you get a you get a sense of who her parents are through that yeah yeah and so yeah i think there is a, an element of like no you don't sort of leave much um fat on it in in that sense like every every part of it was starting to feed towards like that can that panel can tell me something about the character and it can also you know give us an idea of the tension of the piece and hopefully it all sort of like works together yeah no it's really cool that's that's interesting it's not a thing i would have been able to articulate that was happening <laughs> but now that you spell it out i'm like oh, okay yeah that's the that's the approach um yeah no it is it's it's funny because suzanne is so good during this era that like she like she doesn't lose for, <laughs> for like years and obviously in a sports a biopic and, and biography and stuff like this there's an expectation that there's drama and that there's tension and that and, and you see so you have to find the ways to sell that with character with what's going on in her life and then kind of build that up to 
a difficult match and sell the you know sell the match essentially for this person who like kind of always wins <laughs> almost yeah you know? but then that also i think is really interesting because um this year the uh, uh, world number one on the women's side is Iga Shriantek and she had a uh, 37 match win streak and yeah. when you were watching it you could tell uh, the kind of mental weight that win streak was having on her during those matches to the extent that that when she fin finally lost at Wimbledon like it almost looked like it was a relief to her and mm -hmm. and so that in itself sort of like brings a certain tension to the book because you're like you're waiting for that big loss. You're waiting for it to happen. Um, and also that goes a long way to explaining Suzanne's uh, sort of personality at the time and her mental state, because as it sort of, I, I, I sort of reiterated various points in, the, in different chapters, the, dif the, the, the differing sort of uh, things that were weighing on her. So you had... Um, the fact that her relationship with the press was okay and she understood that it was fine as long as she kept on winning. But as soon as that went away, they'll turn on her. Uh, same with her parents, same with her friends, same with the institutions who, you know, she's not making any money from them anyway. And so she's very aware that the public and the press and her loved ones will all eventually turn on her as soon as she starts losing. And so all of that sort of pressure building up to, uh, yeah, which hopefully is all sort of coming through either consciously or subconsciously to read it. So that when you're, you know, reading that, um, the, you know, the match of a century in uh, 1925, you know, you're as worried for her as, as everyone else is. Right, right. That's the thing. No, it's. I think that's what's so effective is it sells the stakes of it so far beyond tennis, you know, because, and, and Suzanne's a fascinating character because she is perpetually likable, but she can also have this really ugly confidence as things progress, you know, but like at the same time, you have this character who is wearing loose-fitting clothing in an era where no one is doing it and, and being herself, and she's drinking cognac during matches, which, like, boggles my mind. And, and especially during the 20s, right, where, like, Prohibition era, like, it really stands out. Um, but then as she's winning, like, she's cr super cruel to some of her friends and supporting players, and, you know, but it's, it's, it's a nice balance of, like, a complex human being, right? This, you know, with a, with a complex relationship with her own parents and family and her dad has that very domineering tennis parent you know maybe one of the the forefathers of stuff that we've seen and like you know obviously like the Williams sisters you know there's King Richard movie that Will Smith's in that, that makes that pretty famous um so yeah no it's it's a great relationship and and story well beyond tennis I mean that's the thing that I keep telling people is like you don't have to love tennis or even sports to dig this um was that it like what were the what was like the most important thing to you in telling that story like were you were you like i want to get to the human over the sports influence of it yeah i i think that's really you important know. to me that uh and part of the reason it's called suzanne uh, all the chapter titles are uh named after the different nicknames that she was given throughout her career and then so we've got like you know the maid marble the little sorceress quitter um you know the empress of course and then the actual book is called suzanne because i wanted to make sure it was about the person at the heart and also yeah like yeah. You know, i didn't want her i didn't want it to be a hagiography i wanted it to be 
a real person. There were definitely times in my research um, when I was reading about her that I wasn't sure if I liked her. And I wanted that to come through as much as the the stuff I really admired about her as well. Um, because, yeah, I definitely liked her a lot. And yet there were, there were times when I... Um, I guess if I was a tennis fan at the time, I, I'm one of those like people who always roots for the underdog, whoever's playing. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if I'd necessarily have been a, a massive fan of her at the time. <laughs> like, uh, um, yeah. So all of that, I wanted to be in there for sure. Like, um, and and it was important to me that it was about that person and and giving Suzanne more agency. Or at least that's part of the arc of the story is that she slowly gets to have control of her own life and she doesn't at the beginning. And that seems to be the case for a lot of sports stars who have that relationship with their parents. Andre Agassi was a big touchstone for that in terms of his relationship with his father and whether or not he even liked tennis. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of like, you know, parallels with um, Osaka and her relationship with the press and, um, you sure. could say that with uh, the Williams sisters as well. Um, yeah, and so all of that was important. But like you say, yeah, I wanted it to be, I also really wanted it to be um, interesting to people who have no interest in, in, in tennis or, or, or sports. Uh, but I, I also wanted it to kind of work as a love letter to tennis as well. I, I guess in my heart, I would really like people to read it and develop an interest in tennis afterwards. Because for me, it was, I've been at a lot of comic conventions and festivals where comic readers and creators both seem uninterested to a, uh, an aggressive footway, uninterested in sports. Uh, and mm -hmm. For me, I really feel like um, as lovers of narrative and storytelling, it's it you know there's some incredible stories in sports in that respect and uh like yeah. any any match or game is essentially an unrehearsed play sometimes they're just really bad unrehearsed plays but you know when it's a good one it's really good and uh, yeah yeah same for comics right yeah. you know it's like you you read the bad ones to get to the good That's ones sometimes yeah. Yeah. it happens <laughs> so yeah i really wanted it to um to sort of work as a yeah almost like an advert uh, or at least for me to relay my love of tennis and why I love the sport and you know, the things that I found beautiful about it as well. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's really cool. Yeah, it's, it is funny that that relationship between, I get that a, a lot of times because I am a sports fan and obviously a massive comics fan. Um, but like if I start talking sports, people are like, all right, not, you know, you get, you get the the thirty percent of people who are like, ah, oh, sports again, and then you know you find out that actually it's like actually a lot of people like lots of things. Yeah. <laughs> they you know they contain multitudes. Um, <laughs> what were the what were the details of the era of the Roaring Twenties that like stood out to you the most in your research? The stuff that you were kind of the most excited to learn about or to put on the page? Yeah, I think um, a big thing for me was just being a, a big Fitzgerald fan and 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 loving the. The uh, beautiful and the damned, and, and and some of the literature from the twenties, and once and and you know the fact that a lot of those American writers were based in the south of France, they'd have been going to these matches, they'd have been hanging out with the same people and going to the same shows, 
Um, and so that was like a really nice sort of uh, way in for me. Um, but it also, yeah, it made, it made sense to do a lot of uh, research on the fashion and the Art Deco period. It allowed me to like really dive into the illustration styles at the time and try and sort of uh, hopefully sort of uh, absorb a lot of that and put it onto the page in different ways there. Um, yeah, it, I mean, any kind of excuse to do a lot of like deep dives and research is, um, is always nice. Um, I mean, that's one of the sort of favorite parts of these sorts of um, these projects. You know, I'm starting to work on something, uh, my, my, my next book, and part of the fun is sort of uh, having like 20 books arrive at your door and to start to yeah. get into those. Um, uh, where it all seems quite open as well and you know you you're not in you know you know you've got like a few ideas about things you'd like to touch on but ultimately it's all up in the air at that point it could be anything um cool yeah. <laughs> i listened to your to your interview with um karen gillen that you did on on decompressed and you talk about their kind of being wanting to progress to to fiction probably next um and that you can see the progression from you know journalism kind of politics comics to to this which is a blend uh is that what's next like a like a full fiction project yeah i think so i think it's going to be a horror comic which is going to be a left okay. but um yeah gotcha okay so in progress yeah, yeah yeah it's early days um like i say i'm just sort of uh buying a lot of um books and memoirs but it's um i guess the 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 thing that i would uh, draw a Draw a connection to Suzanne is uh, I, there's definitely a connection in terms of thinking about how fame is abuse and how um, yeah I think that's sort of one of the, the key areas and sort of um, yeah how your career defines you and legacy I guess so there's a lot of collective tissue there yeah no it does seem to be a a recurring refrain that we see certainly in pop culture that folks who become famous very early, I mean, certainly tennis is a great example of that. I mean, you have all these examples of Andre Agassi, you know, very famously, um, you know, as well, whereas he's wrote in his biography, like I hate tennis or whatever the, the line that stood out was. Right. And it's just these things where you're like, Oh, they're just miserable. I mean, even the Elvis thing, you know, I'm watching, which I don't, it feels probably more like a hagiography and it's, I don't know how, how accurate some of the stuff is, but he, you know, there's a real sense of like, Oh man, it would kind of suck to be Elvis. <laughs> like he doesn't seem to enjoy this at a certain point. So yeah, there's I can see I can see mining that for horror. You know that that's interesting. Um, okay, cool. How, so let's see. Uh, one question that I have, which is which is not Suzanne specific. Um, what is the best tennis match you've ever watched? What is your all time favorite Ooh. tennis match? Do you have one? God, I don't know if I do have one. Um, I have a lot of recency bias when it comes to that as well. Like, you know, it can be like the most recent thing you've watched uh, is the best one. Um, I find probably there was like a year, I think it might have been like 2018 or something where um, it felt like uh, I've sort of slowly come around to being a big uh, Simona Halep fan, having watched a lot of matches with her and um, just mm -hmm. finding myself feeling um rooting for her because often she loses in the big match, you know, the big final yeah. or whatever, and couldn't quite get over the line. And uh, there was um, this 
match, I think it must have been the semi-final of the Australian Open where she played uh, Angie Kerber and it was incredibly grueling, but it, it was just like an incredible match. Um, uh, Halep went on to lose the final uh, to Wozniacki again in this incredibly grueling three, three hour sort of match. But, um, uh, and there were like pictures of her sort of like on an IV drip in hospital afterwards for dehydration and things. Um, but it was just it, that year in particular seemed particularly good for like Halep matches in terms of whenever she was playing, you knew you were in for a good match. And, you know, you often get these sort of, um, best of best matches of the year sort of summaries and uh, for the past few years it feels like Halep's been sort of involved in one of them I think mm-hmm. I've always watched them just because uh, no matter what the scoreline is you know that she's never going to sort of give up and there's always going to be like this incredible comeback at some points and uh, she might end up losing the match but she'll make you know she'll take it to three sets and it'll always be um, incredibly watchable that's my sort of yeah. like, long-winded answer but um I thought that Yannick Sinner-Carlos uh, Alcaraz match at the US Open was particularly good. Um, uh, yeah, oh, this is bad. There's probably lots of Murray matches that'd be favorites of mine as well. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Is he your favorite tennis player? Um, oh. He's definitely up, up there in terms of, again, he's one of those people who will, I like an aggressive counterpuncher, I guess, Agassi was one of those. I, I think I fell in love with that style of play with Agassi. Um, and politically, I like Murray for, you know, actually speaking up on things, uh, issues. Um, and and again, he's a bit of an underdog. You know, in the era of the big three, he was the sort of uh, the guy nipping at their heels and managed to just about keep up but never again, but he lost, you know, he's now got a metal hip because of it. So (laughs) Uh, I don't know, there's something very human about that. You know, like he felt like a human amongst these uh, gods. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No, for sure. No, there's something about the, the grueling potential of tennis that I think really resonates. So like my, the match that will always stand out in my head is like, I happen to be in a hotel for whatever reason, and I caught the Andy Roddick five-hour Australian Open win, um, where he won in the fifth, like twenty-one games to nineteen, and it just—it was that thing of realizing in the fifth set that it's like, oh, tennis can go forever, <laughs> like, like it can just never end. And there's something so—you know, talk about the storytelling potential, right? And just the drama of this thing, where it's like, who's gonna who's gonna break first, right? Who's gonna let up just a little? Who's gonna never say die? Like, there's something very human oh, and captivating sure. about that, and and the fact that it's just you on there, and that the only person who understands what it feels like to be in that position is the other person on the other side of the net, who's your enemy, who you have to beat. But they're the only one who really gets what it feels like, how lonely it must feel like to be. Yeah, there. I find that really fascinating, and I don't know. There, there are times not to. Um, you know, make myself uh, part of a story or compare myself to elite tennis athletes and things. There is something about being a comic artist where you're like on your own and you're Hmm. often, it's the sort of internal critic in my head who is bothering me, you know, and telling me that's wrong and you should, like, you need that critic to a large extent to be able to 
know exactly what you're doing and why you're doing it and um, and make sure you're not going down terrible paths, but also you need to dial it back enough to be able to actually create anything in the first place. And that, that kind of like battling your own internal demons when you're trying to make art feels very much like um, when you're watching tennis players and you can see then it's not even the other player who's bothering them at that point. It's their own, their, you know, their issues, their own internal demons. And that's really interesting to watch. Right. Right. Oh, that's an interesting comparison. Yeah. I wouldn't have thought of that, but that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. So, so we kind of, you have a sense of what's coming next. Are there any other projects or things you got coming up that you want people to know about or right now it's all, all Suzanne? Yeah, just Suzanne. I mean, I'm, I'm working on a, an, another potential idea, but, I think would be a, like an anthology um and so i'm just starting to sort of put together the early versions of that and vaguely ask people uh, friends and peers who whose work i like and, and just sort of start to like develop that um i recently did a poetry comic with chrissy um who i usually do poetry comics with um and those are all up on your on your website, I believe. Right? I haven't put that up yet. That's a new one um, that will probably come out shortly. Um, and yeah, at the moment, it's just yeah, developing future projects and trying to get back into illustration work, really, as well. Sure, sure. Okay, cool, cool. Well, this has been a blast. Um, I, I really dug the work, so we're definitely going to be recommending it over on CBH for the rest of the year. Um, again, it's Suzanne, the Jazz Age Goddess of Tennis. We're going to be including links in the show notes. And all that good stuff. Um, okay, final question: What uh, what are you reading lately that you're loving? Anything uh, you've picked up lately, comics or otherwise, that you've enjoyed? Uh, I'm currently reading uh, *Lolly Willows* by Sylvia Townsend Warner, which is a kind of um, I guess it's quite like a gothic uh, gothic. Um, God, it's really difficult to describe. Um, but it's, yeah, it's about a woman who, uh, for all intents and purposes, is uh, sort of abandoned uh, by society and the people around her for essentially, you know, being a spinster who's decided not to sort of follow the um, general precepts of society by, you know, marrying and earning, etc. Uh, it's really good. Um, and contains it you know sort of surprised me by becoming like a folk horror halfway through um it's very good um uh, i also read the the vet's daughter recently which i really liked so it which is similarly gothic in that respect um yeah um yeah i've been reading a lot of the uh have you always been a big horror fan or is that a, a kind of recent you know semi-research development i have no no it's uh i um Actually, during the uh, lockdown, my I live in Edinburgh. My brother lives in London, and uh, throughout the pandemic, we've been uh, watching uh, a horror film a week. Uh, every Thursday night, we all uh, okay. watch at the same time, and so that's been really lovely. Um, and we've kept it going. Uh, um, no, I've always loved horror. Um, but uh, yeah, I haven't just been reading horror. <laughs> um, I've been reading like Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips' uh, Reckless series and enjoying that. Uh, mm. That's super fun. Yeah, 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 it's good sort of, you know, uh, I, I feel bad saying this because I know how long it will take them to make, but really uh, fun sort of like one evening read. <laughs> um, 
yeah. Oh yeah. They go down quick and smooth, but it's, you can tell there's, there's love put into it for sure. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Okay. Perfect. Well, Tom, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, we'll, we'll let you go now, but it was a blast. Thank you. Yes. Thank you.